Hi, you're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Impact Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. I'm Pastor Brandon, the church planter and lead pastor. We are a new church in the D.C. area that is centered on the gospel and sent to our neighborhoods, Northern Virginia, and the nations. Please visit our website at www.impactfxbg.church. There, you'll find our current meeting times and locations. Our prayer is that you are encouraged by the message you hear today and fall more in love with Jesus and others. Thanks for listening. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, like Brandon said, my name is Wes. I'm one of the pastors here at Impact Church, and it is a joy and a privilege to be here and to, to share with you this morning a message from God's Word. Um, we've started a new series on biblical relationships, um, and sometimes uh, we hear the word relationship and people start to get to feel a little funny, right? They start to say, we're talking about relationships. Well, I'm, I'm not really interested in a relationship. I'm not really interested in those kinds of things. But we, I want to give us a, a little bit, before we dive in today, a, a little bit of a, some context for why we're talking about relationships. Why do we do this? The thing is, is that we believe that God has created us to live in community with others. Okay? That, that's the thing, is that God has created us to live in community, and the, the Christian life is best lived through community. Well, the thing is, is that you can only live in community if you live in relationships. And so we're going to be talking about different types of relationships. And, and this week, uh, we're going to be talking, well, I'll get to that in a second, because the idea is that you are, the sum of your parts, you are made up of multiple types of relationships, right? If you think about it, let, let's do this. Let's do a fun little exercise. You don't have to do this out loud. Some of you said I didn't come to church to do homework or anything, but we're going to do this in our heads. I want you to just think about all the different types of relationships that you have. I mean, if I'm thinking about myself, I think, well, first, you know, my first relationship was I was a son. I mean, I was born. So there's a relationship with my mom and my dad. There's parents. Um, maybe I, uh, I have a brother, and so I'm a, I'm a brother. I'm a sibling. Um, then uh, I got married, so I'm a husband. I had kids, so I became a father. Um, I have friends, so I'm a friend, I hope, at least. Um, I'm a pastor, so that's a different type of relationship. And my day job, I'm a boss, I'm a coworker. All of a sudden, what seems like just this really easy thing about talking about relationships just became a whole lot more complicated because you are the sum of all of those relationships. And the thing that we are doing in this series is that we want to make sure that we understand you we want to make sure that we understand as a church that no matter what relationship we're in, the only one that governs that is our relationship with Christ. It's our relationship with Jesus that serves as the foundation for each of those other things. Um, Last week, Pastor Brandon walked us through 1 Corinthians 13 as a beautiful picture of how the foundation of each of those relationships is love. Love has to be the foundation. It's how we relate to each other because, as we saw last week, without love, we're nothing. So this week, we're going to talk about one of those many different relationships and we're going, to talk one, we're going to talk about the relationship of marriage. Now, I have a few quick caveats, because as soon as I said the word marriage, a lot of you had a lot of different reactions. I watched the wave <laughs> across everyone's faces. So I have a few, a few quick caveats. The first thing that we want to make uh, crystal clear this morning is that marriage is not the most important relationship we're going to discuss. And a lot of places and a lot of times marriage gets put on this pedestal and it's the epitome of the Christian life. It's the epitome of life in the church. It's the epitome of life. Everybody should be getting married. All that kind of relationship talk, that, that's not our purpose. Um, the most important relationship that we're going to discuss today is your relationship with Jesus. 
There's no other relationship that's more important. In fact, uh, marriage isn't even your most important relationship if you're married. The most important relationship in your marriage is your relationship with Jesus. So we're, we're going to take marriage off its pedestal today because it's, it's not supposed to be there. Anytime you put something on a pedestal, it gets knocked down. If you don't know that, come hang out with the toddlers and they'll show you real fast. Um, the next thing here is there, there, some of you here today, you may be listening in and you're, you're not married. And so your immediate thought is, great, another sermon on marriage. I can take a nap. Um, can I just encourage you not to do that? Um, because guess what? Uh, this message is still for you, even if you're not married, or even if you're, uh, well, we'll get that, uh, even if you're not married, because marriage, like I said, isn't the, it's not the epitome of human existence. It's not the epitome of your life in Christ, but why you need to listen to this message today if you are not married is because your married friends need you. We don't say that enough, and we're going to say that today. If you're single today, or if you are post-marriage or something like that, your friends who are married need you. Because if you live in a married relationship, you can get all subsumed and consumed and be all about this little relationship right here, and you can get lost in that. We need brothers and sisters in Christ who will look at us and say, hey, wake up. It's not about that. It's about Jesus. We need brothers and sisters who can look at us and remind us of some of the truths we're going to talk about today about marriage. And honestly, we need brothers and sisters in Christ who can show us that, hey, there are other ways to live. We need that. And you can be here today and be listening and you are married. But you know what? Your marriage may be incredible, amazing. And you think, hey, I don't need to listen to a sermon on marriage. I got it all in the bag. Um, and some of you may be saying, I don't want to listen to a sermon on marriage because my marriage isn't that great. I don't want to do that. Um, you may be here today and have been married before, but you're not married now. So wherever you are in your relationship with the idea and practice of marriage, hear me on this. Today, it, our focus isn't on principles of marriage, five great ways to communicate to your spouse, um, how you need to be married. Like that, That's not what we're talking about today. So go ahead and take that anxiety and some deep breaths. Hold, breathe in for four, hold for two, exhale for six. Like Do some of those breathing exercises. Because we want to focus today not on marriage, but, but really on what the Bible says. We want to focus on what God says uh, that he designed marriage for and how it's described in his word. And, and really, if we take it down to its root, we're not talking about marriage. We're going to talk about the gospel today. We're going to talk about Jesus and his relationship with us. So with those caveats out of the way, and you've done your breathing exercises, um, let's get started. Um, well, we uh, think about this, um, we think about marriage, a lot of times, what's, what's the first thing that pops into your head when you think about marriage? It's a wedding, was probably the one I was going for, so I'm just going to provide that for you. It's a wedding, because um, <laughs> a lot of you are like, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that as a call and response. It'd be fine. Um, we think about weddings. We think about that's where marriage comes from. That's not where marriage comes from, but in our culture today, that's what we think about. Uh, you know, we've had a, a busy month of weddings in our church, oh, two of them, uh, so two weekends have been subsumed with wedding festivities. And weddings are a lot of fun, right? Um, and so we, we talk about all the fun things that happen at wedding. In fact, uh, we're coming up in just a few weeks on mine and Britter's 14th wedding anniversary, our 14 years of marriage. There's young Britter and Wes. Aren't we cute? Aren't we pretty? I know. We were young once. It was a thing. And we were young and dumb because that's a week post-graduation. And we thought, we don't have any jobs. We don't have a place to live. Let's get married. Woo! 
Woo! Um, so that's one thing, you know, if you ask me to marry you and we do premarital counseling, we're going to talk about that experience and how you don't want to do that. But, <laughs> um, but we, it was fun. It was a great day. Uh, we'll talk more about that later. Um, there's a lot of symbolism and there's a lot of joy that goes into a wedding. Um, but can I, just, can I just say this? And some people might get mad at me, um, and that's fine. See me after. Um, a wedding's just a party. It's just an event. Uh, that's why everybody gets so stressed, because don't nobody want to be an event planner? If you do, I'm sorry. <laughs> that is not my life. I can't stand it. Um, it and it, it can be a great event. It can be a lot of fun. Everything can go smoothly. If you've ever had a wedding that went completely to plan, let me know. I'd love to know what you did. Um, I also just want to say Weddings can be great because they, they can be an act of worship. You know, as part of our wedding ceremony, we had corporate worship. We sang hymns and we did things. I mean, that's just who we are and what we did. But honestly, that wedding, it's a blip on the radar of life. You talk to anybody who's gotten married, I can tell you that they don't remember their wedding. Okay. 14 years later, and I know that we got married. I know kind of what happened that day. Um, there were some really great moments. There were some less than great moments. Britta and I have, you know, spent 14 years processing that. Um, we, we had some things in it that were, were fantastic. And really, honestly, we were like, yeah, we're married. And there were other things that we were like, can we get married faster? Like, let's just get through this. Um, we didn't even eat at our reception. The only food that we had was the food that we fed each other for the gift, for like the, um, for the pictures, that like the cake and the, the groom's cake and stuff like that. We had some sparkling white grape juice because, you know, Baptist. And so then we, um, we move forward. We, we have this long party in May in, you know, the middle of Mississippi where it's hot, it's humid, it rained that morning. And if you've never been in a May afternoon in Mississippi after it rained, there's just, you just can't describe it. It's sticky and hot and gross. It's, it was just bad. So we finally get the car cleaned up because someone who will shower name nameless decided to wreck my car. Um, here he is. Uh, and so we, <laughs> uh, we, we did that, and then we finally get in the car, and I look at Britter when we get in the car and drive away. I'm like, I'm starving. She said, me too. I said, you want to go to Sonic? <laughs> she said, yes. So we stopped by Sonic and got food on the way out. That was, I mean, th that was great. It's a whole thing. As much fun as that was, and it's fun to recount some of those stories, and sometimes, um, the thing is, is that marriage isn't our idea. Marriage wasn't anyone of us idea. Marriage ultimately is God's idea. And so that's what we want to talk about today. So if you're taking notes, I want to write that, I want you to write that down. Marriage is God's idea. And after you write that down, grab your Bible, and I'd love for you to open it up to the book of Genesis. Um, it's the first book in the Bible, and so if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, there's an app for that. Uh, I recommend the app U version. It's a great Bible app because it has lots of different translations. You can find one that's in a language that you like or a translation that you like, so it's easy for you to read. But we're going to look in a Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to read some, some scripture there where we can see very clearly how marriage is not man's idea or God's idea. Uh, it was God's idea, excuse me, it is God's idea. So, uh, Genesis chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 26. If you're there, say, I'm there. Yeah. All right, let's read. Um, in verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning. There was the sixth day. We see in this passage that God created man and woman in his own image, and he told them, be fruitful and multiply. This was God's design. This is what he did. He specifically designed man and woman to be together in marriage, to be fruitful and to multiply, to have children, to to continue to grow humanity. And he gave them a job to do. And this job was to rule over creation or to take take care of it. Your translation may say to subdue the earth. Um, That is not our idea of subdue maybe that we have today where it's like domineering. It's the idea of take care of. Basically, hey, man, woman, Adam and Eve, you guys are going to be really big gardeners and you're going to garden the earth and it's going to be great. Um, You're going to rule over creation. Basically, he said, I'm giving you all that I have made, and it is very good, and you get to be my steward. And that's what they did. Um, We see in the end of chapter 2, if you want to turn there with me, of Genesis. So Genesis, end of chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, we see another kind of picture of this story. Moses gives us a little bit more to go on. And he says in verse 18 of chapter 2, then the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. Now notice that. There's the only time that God says anything about creation that's not good, and it's that man would be alone. So remember what we talked about earlier about relationships Now we're all designed for relationships? Here's where we get that, because it's not good for us to be alone. We're supposed to be in relationship. Um, God says, I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. I have questions for Adam when we get there about some of the names. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We see here in this picture um, that Adam and Eve... um, left, quote-unquote, their families. <laughs> they didn't really have one to come from. Uh, God made them. They were the first ones. But what Moses tells us is that this is the picture of marriage. This is why their kids leave families to join new families, and then they have kids that leave families to make new families, and that's why, that's why it continues to grow. That's that idea of multiplication, right? Um, the real thing, though, is that God designed these two people to be together and to accomplish what he wanted to do in the goodness of his creationship. So I want to point out a couple of things. One, um, in this relationship, there's equality, okay? 
There's equality. Man and woman were on the same page. Uh, Both man and woman were created in the image of God. That was what Genesis 1 says. So they are pictures of the image. That idea of being an image of God, imago dei, is the idea of imaging forth God, showing the world who God is. So by their very existence, by who they are, they were showing the rest of creation a picture of God. And that picture of God, if you noticed in chapter 1, was that idea of making man in our image, in our likeness. So it was the harmony, it was the community, it was the relationship between God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that man and woman get to image forth out. Um, both the man and woman unite into a new family. They leave their parents to make a new one. So there, there's a relationship, there's an equality there. We're both leaving to create a new one. Talk to anybody who's married. If somebody still wants to stay with mom after they get married, there's a problem. We both have to leave. We both have to step out. We both have to go. It's an equality in that. Uh, the man and the woman are together, and it says that they are not ashamed. They're not ashamed. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But the idea is that they were together, and they were not ashamed to be together. Both the man and woman have a role to play in this creation. They're stewards. Uh, C.S. Lewis calls them kings and queens of creation because that was their job, was to be the steward over all that God had given them. This This equality before God shows us that the union we see in marriage provides a picture of the goodness of God because that's how he ends the whole thing. God looked at his creation and didn't say it was good. He said it was very good. The fact that now man and woman are together. We have stewards over creation. We have a beautiful picture of the relationship that God has with himself. And now he has that relationship with his creation. It's beautiful and it's good. Now, I say that, some of you look at me and say, Wesley, that's really great. I'm glad that you said that beautiful picture of Genesis, beautiful picture of creation. Um, But you know what? Genesis 3 is coming, okay? Um, And for those of you that don't know, Genesis 3 is where Adam and Eve mess up. They decide to, instead of following God and his commands, say, you know what would be really cool? Let's us be gods and let's make our own decisions. And thus sin enters the world and takes this beautifully good picture of the goodness of God and his relationship and creation, and it breaks it. Because that's the thing, guys. If you told me that, I would say you're absolutely right. (laughs) Sin causes problems in marriage because sin causes problems in people. Uh, And people get married, so therefore the two go together. Um, Our tendency to go our own way, to be our own gods, to assert our own independence, um, it causes problems in every relationship we're in, not just marriage. It's every single one of them. Um, but, and this is a, a really big but, if we are in Christ, then we are new creations. The old has gone. Behold, I'm making everything new. That's what Jesus promises us if we are in him. And what's beautiful about this is that the same is true about marriage. A marriage that is founded in Christ is a marriage not founded in the sin of Adam and Eve, but in the goodness of Jesus Christ. And it's found in that goodness that we can have newness of life. Does that mean that you won't sin in your marriage? Nope. But what it does mean is that there is hope and that there's newness. And that's what we want to talk about today. 
Because the thing is, is that uh, this idea of newness of life in, uh, in Christ is a, is a New Testament idea. It's a Christian idea. It's a post-Jesus' life, death, and resurrection idea. So we can't look at the Old Testament for that because they didn't have that. So we got to look at the new. If you would, we're going to flip over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning. Uh, uh, Brandon talked a little bit about the church in Corinth last week, and so if you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you to go listen to that message uh, on our podcast or through the live stream, because it, it really shows us a lot about this culture that they're in. And honestly, the, the church in Corinth is, is a lot like today's culture. Um, it was very driven on commerce. It was very driven on money, materialism. It was very driven on sex and on uh, sexual relationships and, and just the propundency of that. So there's a lot of things that kind of reflect our culture today. But what's interesting about the culture of 1 Corinthians is they did not have this long-standing tradition of Christianity to fall back on, right? They didn't. All they had was either Judaism, so this idea of being the chosen people of God in Israel and what the Old Testament law says, or paganism, so talking about the Greek gods or the Roman gods or all these other things that said, you know, go, have, go worship however you want. Go have sex with whomever you want. That was the culture that they were coming out of. And so these, this early church gets together in Corinth, and they're like, you know, we want to live in this newness of life that is ours in Christ. But how are we supposed to do that? Sound, sound a little familiar, maybe, to some of us? You get saved, you come to know Christ, and then you're like, now, now what? <laughs> what? What am I supposed to do? Um, but they didn't have a lot of people to talk to about it. So what do they do? They talk to Paul because Paul planted this church. And so that's why the book of 1 Corinthians was written. He's answering a lot of their questions. And if you look in chapter 6, he really starts attacking some of the cultural issues that I just mentioned, where he starts talking about their idea of just sex being something that's just a part of life. Um, the fact that they could go to prostitutes that worshiped in the temple, and like that was just a normal thing that people did. Um, and Paul tells them, actually, you, you don't need to do that. You need to flee that lifestyle because that's not going to be helpful for you. And after telling them that, he gets into 1 Corinthians 17, or excuse me, 7, and that's where we're going to be right now. So uh, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and see what Paul has to say about marriage in this context. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So obviously the Corinthian church had some questions. They've sent them to Paul, and he's responding. He said, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. That's what they had asked him about. Can you, can you give us some clarification on this thought that it's good for men not to have sex with women? So Paul says, because of the temptation, this is verse 2, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command. He, Paul's being really careful here. This is a concession, not a command. I say this, I wish that you are all as I myself am, being, meaning single. But each has his own gift from God, and one of one kind and one of another. So right there, Paul tells us, singleness is a gift from God, and marriage is a gift from God. They're both given for, for various reasons. So Paul continues, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. 
But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. So he's, he's being a little more you know, clear here. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, again, being really clear on who's speaking, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Would you underline that part if you're taking notes? Would you just underline God has called you to peace? We're going to come back to that in a minute. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, Paul says a lot here, and I just read it all at once because that's just what I like to do. So we're going to walk through this a little bit because it's really important for us to see what Paul is saying. Because what Paul's really saying isn't even really about marriage. <laughs> Remember that it's about the gospel. That's where we're going today. But Paul uses marriage to talk about it. So the first thing that we need to see out of this passage isn't even really about sex. Paul is answering questions about sexual relationships between men and women. But the principle here isn't about that. Marriage is about serving the other person. So that's your next thing to write down, your next note if you'd like. Marriage is about mutual serving, mutual service. Now that, that might sound a little weird to some of us, so I want to unpack that for us a little bit. Um, look with me again at verses 3 and 4. It says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Notice what Paul is saying here. If you are married, authority over your body is not yours. It belongs with your spouse. That's because of this idea of mutual serving. Both of you are one. That's what that means. You are one. And not just one in Christ, but you are one in flesh. You are one person. And so that idea of mutual service and this idea of belonging to each other completely addresses questions about superiority or a domineering approach to marriage. It's not biblical. I, I can't be any more clear, and I don't think the Bible can either. Um, both husband and wife are to submit to the other in service. Their bodies do not belong to themselves. The rights of their bodies belong to their spouse. Now, how do, what does that look like? What, how does that work? Um, sometimes that looks something really simple and maybe kind of stupid. Um, so my illustration for this being stupid, um, I really wanted a tattoo. <laughs> Confession time. I wanted one. I really did. I do. I kind of still do. It's a thing. Um, it, we can talk about that later if you want. I know I just said that on a podcast, and so yeah, I'll have questions. Um, but I, I did. I really wanted one. Britta and I were engaged. I wanted a tattoo. I'm eight, or, you know, not 18. I'm like 20, 21 at this time. So I'm living my best life. Um, and I, I called her and I said, hey, we're going to get married soon. My body's going to be yours. Your body's going to be mine. And so I don't want to do anything to my body that you wouldn't appreciate. Can I go get a tattoo? Silence. It's good. <laughs> we're off on a roaring start here. And there was no question about like, well, what do you want? Where would you put it? None of that. After a few awkward seconds, she said, I'd really prefer you didn't. I said, okay, 
Well, that answers that question. You have a good rest of your night. Talk to you later. Bye. Click. <laughs> there was probably some more conversation there. But I mean, that was it. I knew that we were getting married. And so I submitted my desire for a tattoo on my body to my future wife because it was going to be hers. That writes to her. Okay? Uh, there have been other kind of ideas like that that have happened in our marriage. I'm not going to go through those today. But that's just a really simple picture of what this looks like. Now, the other thing that this is looking like in this context, Paul's talking about sexual relationships. I'm not going to impact that for us right now. But what I am going to say is the idea is that there is a mutual service in marriage. It's a submission to the other. We need to settle that in our minds for a second. If you are married, this is what it means to be one flesh. Your independence is willingly submitted to your spouse. And that's a two-way street. That's not a one-way street. Um, if I, I can't say it any other way. If only one person is being required to submit in a relationship, that's not marriage, that's abuse. And I, I just have to say it that way. That's what it means. If, if only one person is submitting, that's abusive. Um, that's, that's not marriage. Because the submission has to be from both parties because you're one flesh. Think about this. If my foot says, you know what, I don't want to be part of your body anymore. I'm going to separate and go away. That's not going to end well for me or my foot. It's not. We're going to cease being one flesh. It's going to go away. It's going to do its own thing. And it's not going to survive. Paul dis discusses this. He brings this up in another passage in Ephesians 5. You've probably heard it. I'm not going to make us read it. Uh, but I, I do want to just read it, a little piece of it over to you. You don't have to turn to it. Because this is the part that everybody likes to quote, like at weddings or when we talk about marriage. It's this, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, I heard some murmuring there. There was some little nudging, and mm -hmm, you better submit. All right, <laughs> let me just address that really fast. Um, if we really understood the concept, we wouldn't be quick to be flipping about it. If we really understood what it said, we wouldn't make it a joke. Because what it means is that wives submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ, meaning wives, you're submitting your independence to come underneath your husband and to trust him. Husbands, when it says you love your wives as Christ loved the church, it means husbands, you're submitting your independence to care for your wife. You care for your wife to the point of death. And not just death, but a public humiliating death for her benefit and for her betterment. So it's not this, girl, you better submit. Boy, you better love me. That's not what it is. It's the idea of a mutual submission coming under each other, because that, that's what submit means, to come under, to come under for the purpose of protecting and caring for each other. It's a looking to the other's interests above your own. And that's what submission and love and marriage is all about, the mutual and care and interest for each other. The way that I have described it in premarital counseling and other things is the idea that in a marriage relationship, my job is not to care about myself. My job is to care about my wife. I make sure that she is taken care of in all things. And her job is not to care about herself. Her job is to care about me and to make sure that I'm taken care of in all things. And as long as we are both doing that, then both of our interests are taken care of. But if at any point one of us stops, all of a sudden we get on that shaky ground of slipping away from being married and caring for each other into something that's abusive or something that's unhealthy or toxic or eventually leading to death and death uh, to death of the marriage. 
because we need to think about this. Even down to sexual relationships inside of marriage, the idea here is that the husband and wife belong to each other. It's mutual belonging. It's a mutual bond. It's a mutual submission rather than independence. You can't be married and look at your spouse and say, you are getting in the way of me living my life because it's not your life. It's your life. It's together. Husband and wife serve each other in marriage because by serving each other, what you really are doing is showing each other Jesus. We'll get more into that in a moment. The next thing that we see in this, and you can write this down, is that marriage is meant for life. Marriage is meant to be for life. Because Paul gives some really specific instructions here, echoing some things that we see in other places in the New Testament about ideas of separation and divorce. And so we need to talk about them today. First, he says in verse 5 that husband and wife should not deprive each other or separate except by mutual agreement for a specified time so they can devote themselves to prayer. That's what he says, verse 5. Some things that we need to know about this is that separation has to be mutual. Both parties agree. This is what is good for us, mutual. It means that that separation is time-bound. Hey, we are going to separate for this amount of time. We are going to do this for this amount of time, and then we are going to quickly be reconciled. It means that the separation is for a spiritual purpose. Paul says to devote themselves to prayer. He doesn't tell them what to pray for. He doesn't tell them how to pray or what to do. He leaves that up to them. You guys figure it out. My assumption would be if we're separating, we're praying about us. (laughs) We're praying about our marriage. We're praying about figuring out how we make this work and get back together. Because he finishes that statement by saying, come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Notice he's not talking about self-control, about the being separated. Like, he's not talking about lack of self-control in terms of, of sexual relationships. He's talking about lack of self-control in the marriage. You, you, Satan can tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's the lack of self-control that has led you to separate. So you need to get that together. You need to let the Lord speak and heal in that life and then be reconciled quickly. That's how Paul kind of addresses an idea of separation. But in verse 10, he picks it up again, uh, talking about divorce. And he says, if divorce happens, there are two options, remain unmarried or be reconciled. And that's really hard to hear in our culture. And if I'm going to be completely transparent and honest with you today, it's really hard for me to say. It's really hard. Um, I, I had a whole session with Brandon about this, about like, this is, this is hard for me to talk about. Because uh, a couple of reasons. One, uh, my parents are divorced and remarried. Uh, They divorced when I was 16 years old. Um, I can go into those details. But um, the idea was my dad started a new family and a new life. And so he ended the previous one, which I just happened to be a product of. Uh, My wife's family is divorced. Both of her parents are remarried, have new children. It's a whole thing. Um, So we come from that. Uh, Not only that, I have other family members and friends that have been divorced, are headed towards a divorce, or are wrestling with whether we should get divorced. This is rampant in our culture. And if I'm being completely honest, it's rampant in our churches. Because if we look at statistics, there is no statistical difference between people inside the church and outside of the church determining whether or not they get divorced. 
Zero. There's no statistical difference. And we have the hope of Jesus. <laughs> like, it, it shouldn't be that way. And I'm saying it this to a lot of us today because, you know, you may have been divorced or you may be divorced or you may know someone who is divorced or you may be considering divorce. And it is hard. It is a hard talk. And it is a hard thing to address and it's a hard thing to work through. So I hope you hear my heart on this. Being divorced does not make you less in the kingdom of God. It does not cheapen you. It does not lessen you. It does not make you less than. It's not a reason to be shunned. It's not a reason to be ostracized. And for too long that we've allowed that to happen in churches. When people get divorced, we immediately say, you cannot be a part. What junk is that? Going through divorce is lonely and it's hard. And it's hard not just for the people in the divorce, but the people right around them. You go talk to a kid whose parents are going through divorce, and you talk about loneliness and hardness. Okay? God calls us in marriage to do everything we can to make it last, but sometimes we can't. Okay, here's the thing. You, uh, as a person, you only have control over one person. That's you. As we tell our children very often, um, you can only control you. You can't control what other people do and we're adults in the room. I can say the same thing. You can only control you. You can't control other people. You can only control how you can react. You can't control other people's actions. You can't fix their problems. And if I'm gonna be really honest and speak to the real heart of this, you can't save them. And you can't save yourself. The only hope for that is Jesus. Jesus is the answer to divorce because Jesus is the answer to sin. And divorce at its heart is just that. It's sin. It's a sin born of sinful people and broken relationships. And we have hope in Jesus and peace because we don't know what happens in our relationships because of our walk with Christ. I've seen too many people who get to the brink of we are ending all the things and they start addressing their relationship with Christ and we see reconciliation happen. We've seen too many people who get to the very brink of, I'm leaving, but you know what? Maybe I should pray first. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Glad we're at that point now. Um, sorry, that was probably inappropriate sarcasm, but making a joke. Um, thank you for the one laugh. Moving forward. Um, we've seen too many people get to that point, that pray and recognize that maybe the problem wasn't them. <laughs> maybe it starts with me, and maybe I need to pray and get right, and then we can make it work. It happens too many times because Jesus is the only answer and hope to divorce. Because why? Why is that? Because ultimately, like I said, divorce isn't a marriage problem. It's a sin problem. And Jesus is the only answer to sin. And that is what marriage is supposed to show us, how Jesus answers sin. Because, and last thing that we're going to talk about today, marriage is ultimately a picture of the gospel. That's what this is. See, Paul is specifically talking to people who came to know Jesus after they were married, right? That's who he's talking to, because he has other words to talk about the people that aren't married yet. Um, it's extremely applicable to the Corinthian church, and it's extremely applicable to us. 
because you may have come to know Jesus after you've gotten married, after you've made different choices. Or maybe you thought you knew Jesus and lived life a little bit, and now you're coming to really know Jesus, and now you're seeing how that's going to affect all of the parts of your life that you didn't know it was going to affect. What Paul tells us is if you come to know Jesus and your spouse doesn't know Jesus, that's not a reason to leave them. Um, Because if you're content and they're content, stay together, because who knows what's going to happen. You may be the one that leads them to Jesus. Too many stories like that. Husband comes to know Christ, all of a sudden the wife comes to know Jesus, and the children come to know Jesus. It's It's a natural progression. The wife comes to know Jesus, sometimes the man comes to know Jesus, the kids come to know Jesus. It becomes a way of discipleship because your life is changed. But what stands out for me in this passage is the verse in 15 where Paul writes, God has called you to peace. God desires there to be peace in marriage because marriage is a picture of the gospel and there is peace in the gospel. We talked about Ephesians 5 a few minutes ago. Um, There's one other piece that I want to read to you at the end of it. In verses 31 through 33 of chapter 5 in Ephesians, Paul says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul calls marriage here a mystery, and it's a mystery that refers to Christ and the church, and that is a story of the gospel, but we need to know what that story is. So what is the gospel? The gospel is a story of how Jesus came to earth, leaving heaven, leaving his throne, coming to earth, living as a human, and living a life free of sin, even though he was faced with every temptation that you and I face, every single one. He died a death that wasn't his on a very brutal cross. He was buried in a tomb, and three days later, he picked his life up again in resurrection. And he did all of that for you and for me. That's the story of the gospel. The gospel is the story of God's great love for his people that were broken. They were lost. They were alone. They were removed from him by sin. And he was so moved that he gave up himself to pay that cost, to pay that death, so that we can live in his life and in his resurrection and have new life. The gospel is the story of great love, of a great submission, of a great condescension, of a great restoration. And it's a story of great joy. And the gospel is the reality that marriage reflects. Because here's the thing. There's no marriage relationship that's perfect, no matter what Instagram says. Okay? I guarantee you, behind every Instagram post about how happy they are right now, there were at least two arguments about where they should take the photo, what the lighting should have been like, and what hashtags to use. Okay, you know. No marriage relationship is perfect, but it should be a reflection of the gospel. Husbands and wife reflect to each other and to a world that's broken that relationships can be restored, that life can be found in hard places, and that two people can show each other continual grace, continual mercy, continual love, and continual restoration. Because here's the thing. Jesus does it for us every day. He looks at us and says, you know what? It's a new day. Yesterday may have sucked. It may have been terrible. 
may have been really hard, but today it's new. We're going to do it again. And he tells us to do that to others. And if we're married, then that other, the neighbor we're supposed to love as ourselves, starts with our spouse. We like to think of our neighbor as the house next door. Sometimes it's just the person in the next room or the same room. That's where it starts. Marriage is a a picture of the gospel because Jesus knows that the gospel doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to the world. It doesn't make sense to people that don't know. You talk to somebody and your first comment to them about the gospel is, you know what? You need restoration. And they're going to say, to what? Okay? Why? Who? That's the immediate response of the human nature. It was the response of Adam and Eve. They looked at God and said, you know what? I'd rather make my own decisions. And so let me eat this fruit. We can debate later whether it was an apple or a pear. Um, Marriage answers that question because it shows people and shows a world that looks and says, I don't need to be saved. A real relationship, that is hard. Because marriage is hard. I can't deny that. I've been married for almost 14 years, and uh, we've had some extremely hard moments. We both come from divorced families. In fact, our opening line in premarital counseling was, the statistics are against you. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> uh, it was good, though. He, he, he told us that because he, need, he said, you need to have your answer now before you even start this journey. Will you have divorce on the table or not? We said, nope. Um, we've gone through severe financial difficulties. We got married without jobs in the height of the 2008 financial crisis. Talk to me later about how this, you know, recession is hurting us. Um, We've lost a child. We went and had two more children. We changed jobs, bought and sold houses, moved across the country. We had to relearn how to communicate and mature into adults. We got married at 22 and 21, and our entire dating life was three and a half hours apart. We go from being phone calls away to living together overnight. We had to relearn some things. Um, We've had very frustrating conversations. That's what we call arguments. We have a conversation. Um, We've disagreed. We've had really hard moments of decision. What are we going to do about this? We've had to set boundaries with our families, with each other. We've had to say, this is what I can offer and I can't really offer much more right now. We recognize that marriage is not a 50-50 split. It's a continuum that moves from 50-50 to 90-10 real fast. As soon as somebody has a health problem, boom, now we we start moving in different directions. Or somebody loses a, a parent, or somebody loses a friend, or somebody all of a sudden has a kid and has to recover from having that kid. It moves very different very quickly. But through all of that, in our marriage, we've had one refrain. It's a saying we have in our home, and uh, it's been adapted because I refused for us to use the actual statement from the movie. Um, And the statement is that we're on the same team. It realigns us to the fact that we are not two people working independently of each other, trying to make life work. We are one person working together for one goal. And that goal has to be the gospel. Because it's only one way that that happens, that you make it, because Jesus keeps us together. We can't will ourselves into a marriage that reflects him. 
And that's true for you. You can't will yourself into a marriage that reflects Jesus. It doesn't matter how many marriage seminars or books or podcasts or conferences or sermons you hear. The only way to make marriage reflect Jesus and to work as a picture of the gospel is when your heart is changed. Your heart has to be changed so that it can be changed in the relationship. I know today that not everyone listening here um, has that same story. Like I talked about earlier, your walk with this idea of marriage may not be a great one. It may not be helpful. You may come also from a divorced family, or you may have experienced divorce yourself. Um, You may have been in an abusive relationship, and so marriage is colored through that abuse. You may have experienced a a lonely, loveless marriage. You may feel abandoned, forgotten, and alone. I don't know your story. I don't. I don't know the, the times that you've prayed and the times that you've cried over your marriage or over a relationship, over what Jesus is trying to do. But I do know that Jesus does. And if, I, if you don't hear anything else today, can you just hear these next few words? Jesus doesn't look at your story and judge you. He doesn't look at your story and shame you or abuse you or tell you, you know what, you should have gotten this better. Or you know what, you did that wrong. Or give you the the list of all of the things that are incorrect about you. Rather, Jesus looks at your story, no matter how broken, no matter how hard, no matter how hurtful. And he says to you, you know what? Come home. Come sit with me. Tell me your story, and I'll tell you mine. Because I have a story of a cross that paid the price for you. And it's a story that I pay and tell you so that you can live it, and you can live new. Because here's the thing, when we talk about marriage relationships, I told you we weren't going to talk about marriage, because we're talking about the gospel. Because the gospel is the only way that a marriage survives. It's through recognizing our own sins and the forgiveness that we have in Christ that we can forgive the sins of others again and again and again. And that's true for every relationship but how much more so to the person, if you are married, who can sin against you so much and so deeply and so greatly. That forgiveness can only come when you've experienced that forgiveness yourself. It's through the gospel and experiencing the newness of life that Jesus brings that we offer second, third, fourth, a hundredth, two hundredth, a thousandth chances to each other. Because Jesus gives us a new chance every day, so we can too. It's through understanding the cross that we can submit to each other. We can give up our own wants and interests, even when it's hard. And it's because when both husband and wife are finding their life in the gospel and in Jesus, we can reclaim what God says marriage is. It's very, very good. I'm going to invite the the worship team back up and, and finish up here because I know that this message may have been hard for you today. It may have been hard to hear and process. If I'm really honest, it's hard for me to preach it. (laughs) Um, But I believe that in that hardness, um, there's grace. And there's a chance to respond what God has called us to in his word. So here are some of the ways that I can see that that you may can respond today. So I'm going to talk to you based on on what group you're in. Um, First off, if, if you're listening today and you don't know Jesus, that's your first step. You can't experience life in Christ without first, or a life, a marriage built on Christ, without exper- first experiencing a relationship with Christ. That's where it starts. 
um, trusting in his death and his life, repenting, turning from sin, asking his forgiveness, entering into new life. Guys, that's the only way forward to the type of marital relationship that's based on what we talked about today. So if you don't know Jesus, today's your day. We want to give you an opportunity to do that in just a second. Now, if you do know Jesus, if you do know him and you're walking with him, you know what? You may need to take some time and repent today. Um, If you're married, you may need to repent of not living in your marriage in a way that exemplifies the gospel. You may need to repent for uh, for not living Um, for the best interest of your spouse in a way that demonstrates to them that Jesus loves them. You may need to repent of how maybe you were trying to live for yourself and not for them. And you may need to repent of the sin of divorce, of of struggling through that. That may be where you need to be. If you're not married, maybe you need to repent of how you've glorified marriage as an idol something that I have to have rather than seeing Jesus first. Maybe you, all of us, need to submit our thoughts and ideas of marriage to Jesus so he can restore to them what they should be, to recreate them in his image. Finally, you may know people today or or you may today be in a marriage that's struggling. And to you, the first thing I want to say to you is I'm sorry. I know this message was hard. Um, and I know that in a lot of times, in a lot of places, um, the church doesn't get that right when it comes to how to handle that. So I'm sorry. For me, I am. But guys, I, I want to offer you hope because there is always hope in Jesus. And I want to encourage you today to find hope there. Hope isn't found in your spouse, it's not found in your kids. It's not found in your bank account or your salary package or your job. It's not found in your health. It's not found in a house that's finally clean (laughs) or a house that's better than where we're at or a house at all (laughs) or an apartment. Hope isn't even found, and it's especially not found in your marriage. Hope is only found in Jesus. Hi, Pastor Brandon here. Thanks again for listening to our Impact Church Sermon Podcast. If God has spoken to you today or you have a prayer request you'd like to share, please email us at hello at impactfxbg.church. If you're local to the Fredericksburg area, we would love to see you for worship in person. But if not, please let us know if we can help you find a gospel-centered church right where you're at. Feel free to connect with us on Facebook or Instagram and on our website, www.impactfxbg.church. Until next time, keep living the dream.